Welcome to Taking Measure, a podcast series exploring Roderick Haig-Brown's 1950 classic work, Measure of the Year, Reflections on Home, Family, and a Life Fully Lived. I'm your host, Dan McLennan, and I'm sitting at the desk in the study at Above Tide, also known as Haig-Brown House. From here, I can look out the window across the grounds at the Campbell River flowing past, just as Haig Brown did when he wrote more than 20 books and numerous articles and essays, lectures, and more. He was a remarkable man on many levels, an early, eloquent naturalist and conservationist, a farmer, a magistrate, a university chancellor, and an award-winning author. In the world of fly fishing, he occupies the pantheon. In Measure of the Year, Haig Brown presents a chapter for each month in the lives of the farm, his family, the community, and the nature that surrounds them. So we're going to bring you Haig Brown in 12 parts, through his book, through the eyes and voices of his four children and others who knew him well. We'll take a measure of the man through his Measure of the Year. Mary Haig Brown is the second daughter of Anne and Roderick Haig Brown. She's dedicated her life to the preservation, enhancement, and restoration of the natural world. Streams, forests, fields are all part of this passion. Educated at UBC in English and zoology, she spent years raising children before taking on the management of Canada Arts Gallery in Victoria and then returning to university for a teaching credential in special education and an MA in curriculum. After 12 years of teaching, she retired to devote full-time to the environment. She was a founding member and served as the chair of Friends of Todd Creek Watershed for close to 20 years. She chaired the board of the Peninsula Stream Society for more than a decade and spent 18 years on the Environmental Advisory Committee for the District of Saanich, receiving the 2019 Saanich Environmental Award for Long-Term Achievement. She and her husband of 61 years, Bernie Bowker, live in the Todd Creek Watershed, where they raise their four children. Now their eight grandchildren carry on the tradition of respect for the land and waters. Mary, welcome to Taking Measure. Thank you. I understand you've got a reading picked out for us. Well, I have several readings because it was hard to choose one because I I like everything he writes. (laughs) I can't argue with that. (laughs) I'll read just a short bit to start with. The children and I look forward to the river's new summer flow. This was written just shortly after the dam had been built at John Hart. In June of a normal year, water is breaking over the crest of the wing dam, and there is good swimming behind it. By July, we must take the canoe across to the big rock on the far side to find any depth of water. In August of a dry year, even this is no good. We must pull our way upstream to the next big pool and there's not always time for that. Besides, we don't really like the big pool. With the river at a good height, it is far more interesting to swim the rapid, coming down fast with the current, swinging in behind the big rock, and working up along the shore to do it all again. As nearly as I can judge, 1,500 cubic feet a second should be just about perfect for this. These are some byproducts of a $15 million dam that even the engineers don't know about. If one had to live out a life whose 
sight was limited to the breadth of the river at one place, and the full measure of the year and all the seasons would be in it, as plainly as there are pages in the handsomest calendar ever drawn. It would be a record of contrasts and mergence, the slow-moving black water of January's binding cold against the sunlit brush melting snow and the heat of June, revealing shallowness in August, with brown and green algae on the rocks wiped utterly away in November's bank-high torrent, March rain building the flow in murky haste to settle into a cleaner, still-growing runoff of April and May. September's hesitancy broken by the spawning salmon, becoming October of the drowned and drifting leaves and the dying fish. One could watch and call the winter's weight and spring's delay from hold of fullness in July, look out and know how November winds have blown from the river's height in early December. And I chose that because, well, I, I could have chosen any chapter, any paragraph, any sentence, but I liked the way he talked about the the river and how much it was changing over the years and showing us and telling us what was going on. I hate to stop, but then I can't help stopping <laughs> unless I read the whole book, which of course I did. <laughs> I suspect many times. Yes, many times, many times. I found it interesting as as I went through this the first time that so much of this is centered on the river. Measure of the year is far much more than fishing and so forth. It is the life of the community and the family next to the river. And yet, this wonderful passage about the river is the very last thing in the book. Do you think he was just sort of saving this for last? Or why do you think he took, in some ways, one of the pivotal sections of the book and left it there at the end after having essentially gone through everything else. I don't like to second-guess my father. I, I think he had a fine mind, and I'm not there nearly that fine. But I think that he talked about this at the end because it sums up what the whole book was about, what our lives were about. In the, uh, Maybe I should just read this last paragraph, too, because it's very short. Please do. We live with the river and seldom forget it for long. But we are not always sharply conscious of it. The stranger hears its sound as he lies in bed waiting for sleep. We do not, unless we listen for it. For days on end, we may scarcely think of the river, letting its weight and volume leap and slide away, unheeded as a threshold brook, in patterned flow towards the bridge and the sea. This could be ungrateful failure, but I consider it rather a secure familiarity that takes much for granted between whiles. Except for the river, we should not be here, living and growing as a family on this particular soil. Without the river, there would be no sense to the way the windows look out from the house, the way the lawn runs and the trees are planted. Most of our days would be in some way different, and four different children than these would go out into the world with different measures for their years. Measures for their years, in the measure of the year. I guess he couldn't put it more plainly, more succinctly. In so many ways, everything centers on the river. That's right, and it did. It always did. Not just the fishing. He was a fly fisherman, but that wasn't 
the whole point. And I think that's one of the remarkable pieces of Measure of the Year, is that realization that this isn't another book about fly fishing. There's so much more here. Obviously, fly fishing is a big part of it. But I have a favorite passage as well from the same, shall we call it, subchapter. And if you'll allow me, he writes, I cannot altogether separate this obsession with rivers from the lore and habitat of fishing and hunting. Yet I think it is a natural thing for a man to love a river, and I think I should still want to live by one if I had never caught a fish or fired a gun. A river is life and light, especially in timbered country. It is always the easiest natural way of travel, and it is used as such by many creatures besides man. No clean river can be other than beautiful, and it has changing beauty. Even a streamlet can become impressive in flood time, and the greatest of rivers has a light, almost intimate quality of gentleness at its lowest summer level. This from a man who confessed at one point, I believe, that really he's kind of into the fishing as an excuse to get back to the river. Well, exactly, yes. And he said often, I'm a, a writer who fishes, not a fisherman who writes, because the writing was most important to him. Fishing was just an excuse to get out on the river. And as we said earlier, that we're centered on the river above tide, has the river running right alongside it from one end to the other. You can see it from the house, as he points out, the, the windows face the river, or many of them do as they, as they should. Can you share with us your earliest memories of the river, this entity that would play such a massive part in your formative years? At the beginning, at the first... It was very frightening. We were told that the only time we were allowed to scream was if we'd fallen in the river and were heading downstream. So we knew that it was dangerous and that it could really do some damage to us. At the same time, we loved it. I can remember going and swimming with my mother. Part of my early childhood was during the war, so my father was away. So in swimming with my mother, and she taught us to swim when we were really small. Well, we just loved the river. We loved always the sound of it. You know, we didn't always hear it. We just always knew it. He mentions in that passage you read that you might hear the difference or might experience the river differently than the stranger who is next to it, who might be listening to it at night. You don't lie awake necessarily listening to the river. You don't always hear it. His line is, for days on end, we may scarcely think of the river. And he's at peace with that. But do you think maybe this also contains a warning of sorts about taking things for granted? Hmm. That's an interesting thought. But I don't think that necessarily, at least I didn't feel a warning from that kind of talk. I thought it was reality. We didn't always think about it, but it certainly was always there, always shaping who we were and what we did. When I say there's maybe a warning there, I'm not thinking warning you about the river, but the bigger picture, how we don't necessarily care as well for things that we take for granted. And maybe this was a warning more along the lines of, don't take your river for granted. You must work to protect it. I suppose it could have been that way. And I don't see it in here as a warning. I see it as a fact. You can be part of the river, you can have the river be part of you, but just like anything else that is part of you, 
You don't think about it all the time. It just is. And I think that's what the river was to us. Anytime you've stood next to a river, it's such a, a large piece of your viewscape, your experience that is in motion. If you're sitting in the study at above tide, as I am now, it runs across the window or out, outside the window from as far as you can see to your left and to your right. It is sort of the basis, as we've discussed earlier, is that constant flow, that constant movement part of what makes the river special? Definitely, definitely. I like any moving water, even a trickle down a temporary stream down a hillside. Moving water has some very special qualities, and one of them is the the business of where is it going, where did it come from, and where is it going to? And it seems to know. It just goes on, whether it's a big river, the, the Fraser or something, or whether it's just really small, it does the same thing. It follows, well, water has to run downhill. It does. It just does. That's the thing I find myself saying often to to people who are seeing rivers for the first time or seeing drainage for the first time. Water runs downhill. When you think of it that way, you can see and understand a little of the river or the stream or the trickle, but there's so much more to it that almost defies words. It doesn't have words to express, but is nevertheless a very important part of moving water. This water that never sleeps. Well, that's true, too. <laughs> I know who said that. <laughs> yeah, I wonder. <laughs> this centering on the river brings one into, and, and forgive me for, for winding off course here perhaps a little bit, but the mere fact that the river is unstoppable, is always in movement, is always going somewhere and coming from somewhere. I think that helps to center you in place and drives home maybe more of a respect for the environment, the the world as a whole being so much bigger than you are. The river does not need you. That's quite true. The river does not need us. In fact, it would probably be better off if it didn't have us. He says that quite beautifully in another part where he says that if you could only see one part of the river that was right in front of your eyes and watch it through the year, you would see all the things you needed to see of the river and what it's done, what it's doing. It was your mother who got you started in your, shall we call it, your nature education, not only in terms of teaching you to swim in the river, but from a gardening perspective, and this was in part because those times your father was off in the army. That's right, yeah. And it wasn't just gardening that she taught us. She taught us the names of all the plants in the woods, all the the trees and the flowers and the little tiny things. I didn't think of it as teaching us. She was just showing us and explaining a bit. It was a very, a very gentle kind of teaching. And of course, I was very small, so I, I don't know. What, what my mother said was wonderful. It was gospel. And maybe the perfect companion for what your father would be writing about and experiencing out in the river. Yes, yes, exactly. When he came back, he just picked up from where he left off and went on writing and teaching us and including us in what he was doing and she was doing. It was a lovely childhood. 
There's kind of a wonderful uh, chronology here where he kind of paints himself earlier on in the work as the woodsman, the outdoorsman, and essentially a reality forcing him to become a farmer, a subsistence farmer. And this classic piece on learning, you know, don't admit that you know how to milk a cow, which is one of my favorite parts. And you take that education of your father and, of course, your mother, and he establishes and works on the garden and, and the farm and so forth. And then you take him out of the picture for a period of time, which is essentially forcing then your mother to pick up the lion's share of the work and put her spin on things so that when he comes back, there's a different couple here. There's a different management of the farm and, I guess, appreciation of the river. Is it is that safe to say? Yeah, I think that is safe to say. To start with, well, when he was being the woodsman, that was he lived up in the Nymkish and he was fishing and hunting. He was 18 years old. He was having a hell of a good time. When he got married, he felt that because my mother was a city girl, she probably would need a house with a bathtub. And the farthest north house he could find with a bathtub that was for rent was in Campbell River. And so he, he took her there, and she loved it, of course. So did he. But then, of course, the war came. And he didn't get into the army right away because he was older and he was too well-educated for the, the infantry. He wasn't going to go and get shot. But he did really want to be there. And his, I think partly because his father had been killed in the First World War. So he had to pay his dues. Anyway, the upshot was that he went off and left my mother with three little children and the farm. They cut down the number of cows to one. She could manage one. The vegetable garden, it got much bigger because she found that she loved growing vegetables and she th thought it was magic the way you can read the catalog, think, mm, I wonder how that would be to grow that and then to grow it and then to cook it and feed your family. It was an evolving thing, their relationship and the garden and the cows and the whatever. Forgive me, I had not heard the bathtub story. Oh. <laughs> this, is, this, this is a revelation to me uh, that maybe we have the municipal plumbing system of Campbell River to thank for the location of the community's most famous couple and their children. I don't think that Campbell River had any infrastructure then. There was a well that they first got the water out of the river, but that had its problems. And high water tower, gravity fed to the house, in both the house that they rented first and then the house they bought, which was just next door. They were self-sufficient. They had to be. Indeed. Of course, you had a canoe that was a big part of your experience of the river. Mm -hmm. Do you have any favorite stories along those lines? What was it like canoeing? And he mentions poling your way through areas, I guess, when the river is lower. One has to be pretty good at a canoe, I think, to pull off transiting the river on a regular basis. Well, I suppose he was pretty good at everything as far as I'm concerned. He, <laughs> yeah, mostly he did pull. It wasn't deep enough to paddle. We sometimes did a little bit of paddling, but mostly he pulled it. Did you get a chance to be out there skippering that canoe as well? No, I didn't. No, he did it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we, we sometimes went down the river to the Hudson's, to the Rivermouth Farm, as it was called. We may have paddled then, but 
No, no, it was pretty much him polling and us riding along till we got to the place and then jumped out and swam down or swam around. It was wonderful to swim in the river and to know that we were safe, even if we weren't attached to the canoe or anything, we just were safe. Are there memories? You mentioned when you when you were very young, of course, the river was somewhat scary to begin with, but were there events in your childhood where you, you had close calls with the river? You learned uh, respect of the river, perhaps the hard way. No, I think I think we learned it so well from what they told us that uh, we didn't. I don't think any of us fell. I mean, I can remember when I was just learning to swim, and I was not very bright because I swam from the shore out, and then I tried to put my feet down, and uh, and of course I couldn't touch the bottom. But fortunately, my big sister pulled me out, and I learned my lesson that way. And I don't know that I ever told my parents that. I don't know if she told our parents that. I don't know. I don't know. It certainly taught me that you don't swim out, you swim along the side of the shore, or you swim in toward the shore. It might be safe to say any of us who have ever been in the water can probably think back to the first realization, and not a pleasant one, when the, for the very first time you realize, my feet are not touching the bottom. <laughs> <laughs> There's nothing here below me but water. That's right. That's a wake-up call. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. You talked about the garden earlier on, the garden uh, during the, the war years as being quite an expansion. It was one of those things, like the study here, that bore the mark of uh, the touch of both your father and your mother in their own specific way. That's right, yes. When he came back from the war, she said, you can look after the flowers, I'm not giving up the vegetables. So she did, and the flowers were always his domain. They talked about it, and they said this would be nice to have, or that, or whatever. But he looked after that part, and she looked after the vegetables. And of course, she saw that, I guess, as her role, because she was the, the one most often dealing with preparation of the vegetables for, for meals. Well, yeah, that was why she enjoyed it so much, I think, was because she she had to figure out how to use it, or not grow it. When you think back to your childhood here at Above Tide, aside from the river, is there a place that comes back to mind? One of your, like your favorite hangout from your older sister, Valerie, we heard this is what she liked. Celia would have been back in the barn with the horse. Was there a Mary's place at Above Tide? Hmm. All of it. I just loved it all, except the horses. I was always a little afraid of the horses, but they didn't come till later. No, it, it was quite heavenly to be able to go from one end of the place to the other to look at this and be part of that and see the changes. It's always changing. You know, nothing nothing stays the same in nature, which is why I like it so much. I think Valerie maybe told you about uh, the bomb of Gilead tree and the secret place we had underneath that. No? Tell us about it. Okay. <laughs> it was... Uh, I don't know why we chose it, but it, it on the bank of the river, just downstream from the lawn, was a very big cottonwood tree, but we called it the Balm of Gilead, and the roots were sort of washed out underneath a little bit, so we could get under and be there. And so that was uh, that was our secret place. 
we fix it up with little jars of wildflowers or something. But even when we weren't doing that, it was a good place to go and sit and feel uh, what the river had done by washing out the gravel from underneath it, but not all the way, of course. That, that was a lovely place. Let's venture inside the house at Above Tide for a moment. This is something that we've talked to your siblings about as well. The dinner table. Can, can you describe for us what it was like coming to the dinner table with your reading material is the, is the way we hear it? <laughs> yeah, when dinner's ready, our answer was, where's my book? And I can certainly remember when I was finally old enough, I must have been three or four, to be able to read a proper grown-up-sized book and not those great big books that, that children have, you know, the little ones, because you couldn't prop a great big book up in front of your place at the table, but that was the one you wanted to read, so it was always a little bit awkward. But when I got big enough to see just a regular-sized book, that was wonderful. That was really good. So as you got bigger, the books could get smaller. That's right. <laughs> Haven't you noticed? That's the way it is. <laughs> <laughs> but this was not a case of, here's what I've chosen, and here's why I have to defend this in front of the no. others. This, this was more a sharing of, here's something I'm, I'm, I'm enjoying. Yes, yes, absolutely. I, I don't think that we ever compared. I suppose we must have, but I don't remember that. You know, this is a good book. I enjoy this book. And... We all talked about, and my parents included, what we were reading or what there was to say about the day or, you know, we talked through. But supper lasted probably an hour or two. What a concept. Yeah, what a concept. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Did the conversation from book to book, because there's, uh, there's uh, a number of you at the table, take up a whole bunch of that dinner time or was there uh, a prescribed point in the dinner time where it was, okay, let's let's talk about what we're reading. Oh, no, at least as far as I know, we just had something to say, we'd say it. It was not, there were no rules, at least as I say, as far as I knew, there were no rules. And we ate, we talked, we talked about what we did all day. Of course, Alan talked the most. He, he always talked the most. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we had a great conversation with Alan. Uh, so, <laughs> sure you did. So he was the talker. I think so. Interesting, as he would have brought the only male perspective from the siblings. That's true. Now, we're still inside here, and I'm down in the study, uh, which some people would call a library, but um, I've been told is called the study. And your father describes it in so many interesting ways. And it is not only the place where he writes, uh, it is where he reflects. It is where he is visited by his children and others. When we talked to Valerie, she was very much, in, in many instances, kind of like the, the librarian, the appreciator. Taking that from your mother, I suspect, Alan brought us back to the smell of gun oil and cigars. And uh, so, <laughs> that was different. <laughs> a very different take on the study. So, when you think of this room, what comes to you? Oh, there isn't just one thing that comes, but my sister was three grades ahead of me in school. So, when she had gone, I used to come to the study in the evening, and my father and I would play crib quite a bit. I don't know. My mother would think he should be writing, maybe, or 
I don't know what what he should have been doing, but <laughs> and I should have gone to bed. But uh, we played crib and talked a lot about life and how we lived it and what we were thinking and where we were going. And those were very precious times. Measure of the Year, published in 1950. You would have been... Twelve. Okay. Do you remember that moment when the first edition arrives and the box is opened kind of thing? I remember from many books that excitement of seeing it. I don't know if they still do it, but there would be galley proofs that my father would spend ages going over, long, long sheets with the book on it. And then he would send those back, of course, and then they would send them back. It seemed to take for a very long time. But eventually, eventually, the hardcover book would come. And that was pretty exciting. But we'd already read a lot of it by then because it was around. Measure of the Year is not like a lot of the other works your father wrote. It stands out based on subject matter, and maybe it's it's wonderfully holistic tying together of, of almost everything. Do you recall when, when it was still fresh and new, if there was an, an appreciation of that? Was there the feeling that, hey, this, is, this one's different? I don't think so. Maybe it was for other people, but I don't remember feeling that way myself. Because every one of the books he wrote was different from the others. They, they weren't about fishing, you know. No, I think this was just one more book. And I guess as I got older, and they're now dead and stuff, I appreciate it even more because it brings back all kinds of memories of growing up and being a part of it. I do remember, though, when it came out and I read it, how much he loved us. It was in there just all the way through, how important we were to him and to my mother. But I can't remember when I first thought that or when whether it was when the parcel came or or later. It is very much a love letter from a very specific time. It's almost time travel to read your way back into this. As a stranger, it must be so much more so as one of the major players involved. I guess it is, yeah. I, I can't separate myself from who I am. So I can't read this or anything that my father wrote as a stranger would read it, because I hear him saying it. I hear his cadence. I hear his voice all the way through. That, to me, is a lovely thing. It's marvelous that we have all of these pearls of wisdom from our father. Yeah. You have, I'm assuming, your favorite copy from the early print? Oh, yeah, I've got several copies, actually. (laughs) (laughs) I've noticed that with many people. (laughs) I have one he gave me, because he gave us each one of his books when they were published. One time, my husband was teaching English in, in North Vancouver, and so he bought a class set. And when he left that school, nobody wanted to keep reading them. And those were in the days when you could do this. He brought all the books home. So that's why we have so many of this one. (laughs) So you had a school's worth of measure of the year, for example. Yeah, a class set, as they say. A class set. Can you tell us 
Obviously, your time here at Above Tide made you, in large part, formative years, as we call them, made you who you are and helped to set you on the course that you have followed. As we heard off the top, you've been very busy following and carrying on the tradition uh, of your mother and your father from an environmental perspective. Can you tell me about Todd Creek Flats? This, this, this was new to me. Oh, I can. It's kind of a sad story because I spent all that time trying. Todd Creek Flat is a a floodplain. It's peat soil. It was a wonderful farming land. The Sisters of St. Anne farmed it for 50 years and various other people as well. But the peat has now subsided so that it doesn't drain well enough to be farmed anymore. So... I really thought it would be just wonderful if it were made into a proper wetland. There's nothing that works as well to prevent climate change as a wetland. It has some growth, some greenery, some space for water. It meters the water out slowly and keeps the creek running for longer than it would otherwise. So I would love to see this as a as a wetland, and I I worked quite hard. I don't own a penny of it, so the landowners do, and uh, they've been very cooperative. And now I think they're kind of being condescending to the old lady, but eh, I'll take it, <laughs> if that's what it takes. I don't think I will see it being a proper wetland. It is no longer farmed, and so it does flood. And we've done a lot of work, Ian Bruce and Peninsula Streams, in making it drain, but properly drain, so that the fish will know and get back off the flats. <laughs> Before he worked on them, it was just wonderful for bird watching. It was eagles and vultures and you name it, every bird was there, eating the poor little trout that got stuck behind <laughs> when the water was coming and was leaving. So now it doesn't do that. He's got ditches and stuff. But I still would like to see it be a, a proper wetland. I uh, don't suppose, as I say, that I will see it in my lifetime, but maybe one day, maybe one day it'll be done. Some of the landowners are very much in favor of that, and some are, mm, you know, it's my land. So that's how you do this stuff, you know, this restoration of things. You have to have the people that want to do it, and then the people that are unsure of it, and then the people that are absolutely not. So you work about them. You work with it. You have been, quote, doing this stuff for quite some time now. <laughs> yeah. Do you find it difficult to maintain a positive attitude? Oh, no, 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 because, uh, well, because it's so exciting to do it, you know? And if you don't get one little piece that you're thinking of, there's always somewhere else to look. There's always another part of the creek or the wetland or the whatever to restore and make function again. I think that restoration is really the key piece. It's lovely to see a stream that, I don't know if you ever do see one, but that is all on its own and natural. I mean, maybe Strathcona Park and stuff. To see a part of a stream even being restored, being able to get the fish up the falls or whatever it is. We had a wonderful 
fish ladder and butcher gardens built it to get over their dam down at the mouth. So there would be nothing if it weren't for that. But you have all these projects that you'd like to work on and you'd like to see. And when the time is right, you do something. And when the time's not right, you go and look somewhere else. There's always, always stuff to do. Yeah, I'm positive. I, I just love what I do. And so that's why I keep on doing it. You don't sound to me like someone who's getting ready to pass the torch. Yeah, some days I am. <laughs> some days I've had enough. <laughs> but no, no, I'm not going to pass the torch. It must feel from time to time like you are very much carrying on what your mother and father would have done. Yeah, I, th- I think I am. We each do it in our own way. That's certainly something that I learned from them. You don't think about what you're learning from your parents. You just do learn. And so I didn't think, ah, this is what they would like, and so therefore I will do it, or that sort of thing. I just loved it, so I did it. Now, I saw you mentioning somewhere that you felt that perhaps Roderick Haig Brown was much better known after he died, and not so much so while he was writing. and The word hadn't necessarily got out then. Is that safe to say? Yeah, I guess in different circles. There's so much more appetite now for restoration and for natural world and getting out in nature, doing whatever you can to restore, that he'd almost be redundant now. There's so much happening, but he wouldn't. I guess he is, in some circles, better known now. I don't know. Certainly uh, a man ahead of his time, at the time, and it could certainly well be argued that he was among those planting the seeds that got us to where we are now, at least in terms of interest. And like you say, so many different approaches, so many different people interested in the environment. Yes, he got us there in, you know, he was one, there were plenty of others. And, but where we are today is still a long, long way from where we need to be. So I wouldn't like to say he got us here. It's all his fault. (laughs) I realized as I was saying that, because it could be certainly be taken the wrong way. Yes, but we won't. Do you have any theories as to why his measure of the year and other works have stood the test of time so well when so many writings do not? I think one reason was that his learning was based in his grandfather's teaching. He was a brewer, but he also had an estate, and he taught all his grandchildren who cared to listen about the carrying on the tradition of planting trees and watching the land, thinking about the land, the water meadows. That was all there. And so when he came to Canada, it was just natural for him to carry on. And I think because it was so natural to him, he just wrote about it naturally and left room for people to get in. It wasn't, I know it all, and therefore, listen to me. It was more, isn't this interesting? Isn't it nice the way the river flows or the that sort of thing? He had this remarkable ability, from what I can see, to at all times be... You'd think maybe he's about to argue side A when you realize he's just setting you up for, on the other hand, that approach that seems to cover a wider consideration of any specific instance that really demonstrates how much thought he's putting into this, how he's trying to look at it from more than one viewpoint, 
and how he's not preaching? Well, if you just preach, people aren't going to hear you. I think he was inclusive always with us and with all people of how how these things worked and how necessary they were and and what could mess them up and what could make them stronger. And by doing that and always leaving room for people to get in, which I think he did just automatically. He didn't, I don't know, I, I shouldn't second guess my father. He wasn't threatening. He wasn't in any way unkind. So people were able to follow, be with him, learn. And I guess it's safe to say that actions speak louder than words. Uh, while you were at Above Tide, and while he was at Above Tide, of course, this was a busy place. There was no end of people coming to talk to Haig Brown about either his fishing or his work as a magistrate or a counselor uh, or, in, in general, his, his appreciation of the river. It must have been very interesting to to see all of that as one of his children. Yeah, we didn't sort of see it as something separate. But I know one year I kept saying, well, I don't know how old I was, 12 or something. I don't know who all these people are who come all the time. I don't know what they want. I don't I don't know. why. why what I meant was, why can't I have you guys to myself? So my mother said, here's a book. Write down every person that comes to the house each day. So I started to do that, and holy man, there are an awful lot of people. There was another time when she said she was going to feed everybody that came to the house, but she couldn't keep up with that either. I think that was why he mostly wrote at night. Oh, he tried to write in the daytime, but he got he got interrupted rather a lot. And with your mother acting as the gatekeeper. Well, she did, to a certain extent. And, you know, of course there were court and the people that came because of he was the magistrate so he was somebody in authority and that was who they came to talk to and they came in through the study doors they walked around the house there was no gatekeeper on that he just dealt with them or saw them or heard them when they needed him <laughs> well they used to say there were there were the fishermen who would stop in the road when they saw the name Hig Brown on the mailbox and then just sit there and look and then go home again to California or wherever they went. And then afterwards, they'd write a letter and say, this is what I did. My parents always thought they might be the nicest people to meet because they, they were thoughtful. But there were also other people, mostly very thoughtful people too, who came and said, I just want to, I just want to shake your hand. I just want to see where you write. And a lot of people who became very good friends, they couldn't all become friends because there were too many of them. You know, there, there were all sorts of people that came. A lot to see my mother as well. You know, she wasn't, she wasn't just the gatekeeper. No. No, and that was, that was going to be one of my other questions, of course, and we've talked to your other siblings about this as well. We keep hearing of Haig Brown House and, and Roderick Haig Brown because he was the writer and, and, and wrote so eloquently. Did it feel to you at times that Anne really wasn't appreciated as much as she could have been? She was a lot of things to a lot of people too and, and mostly helping. I know she certainly tutored some of my school friends because, you know, who were having a little difficulty in school. 
and she talked to lots and lots of people who just wanted to understand what life was all about. She was very good at that. I think she did live in his shadow a certain amount in, in certain circles, but she was a person in her own right. And while she maybe didn't blow her own horn or whatever, she uh, was a very valuable source to an awful lot of people. And this was even before she started teaching. Once she started teaching, well, I meet people all the time who your mother was our librarian. Oh, your mother was so wonderful. Your mother showed me this. Mother told me that. Yeah, but maybe they weren't as high profile as, but I don't know. And that's one of the things that makes Measure of the Year what it is, is he so eloquently and specifically points out that what he does is not possible without her. That's true. Yeah, it was definitely true. And then she, she went on to actually play a huge part in the community even after his passing. Absolutely. Yeah, she she did before a lot, but she couldn't have people back to the house in quite the same way if if that was going to interrupt him or their time together which was precious little. But she certainly, once he had died, she got over it. It was a long time. She she was devastated, of course. It was so sudden. She brought all sorts of people here who needed shelter, who needed someone to listen to, who just needed someone to understand. One of the people, John Howard's society person, and when he was finishing the bench that's in the garden at, down by the river, and when she died, he was only partway finished. And he said, please, please, can I finish this job? I just want to do it for Mrs. Haig Brown. And they let him do it. He was able to stay in, I don't know what the arrangement was quite, but she had that effect on people. She she empowered them. She gave them what they were, what they needed to be, what what they could do very easily, very gently, even though she wasn't always gentle. <laughs> <laughs> when we spoke earlier, we talked about Above Tide, now more commonly referred to as Hague Brown House, as a, uh, it's not only more or less a museum uh, to uh, Hague Brown and, and, and your mother, but it's a bed and breakfast. There's children's day camp out on the lawn. In fact, there was one uh, out there today. You must be very pleased, I think, with how that has continued to live on after after the two of them were gone. Yes, I am. You know, naturally, we were a little nervous about the whole museum thing. Are they going to have a, a stuffed statue of my mother kneading bread on the counter in the kitchen? No, no, they're not. I think they've done a beautiful job, absolutely beautiful job, Canberra Museum, of making it what it was and those people still being there, sort of, and but mostly carrying on with either the writer-in-residence or, as you say, the children, the daycare, the whatever else is needed. I think they've done a wonderful job. And, and it's not as though they've done it in complete isolation. You've served on the Hague Brown Institute board? Yes, I have, yeah. As have other siblings? Yeah. 
well, they only sold it to the government in 75, and my father died in 76. So we'd had these family discussions about what should be the place and how should it run and whatever. And, and it's really done it, you know. It's really been that, and it's shepherded by the museum, which, as I say, I was nervous about at first, but I'm 100% behind them now. Mary, it's been such a pleasure to speak with you today, and I have to thank you for that. I also have to ask, you know, is there something more about Measure of the Year growing up at Above Tide that you'd like to touch on that we haven't got to yet? Oh, well, that would take a whole book to tell you. (laughs) No, I think we can only cover a little bit of who they were and how we've grown because of them in any conversation, and so I could leave it there. And that picture is so much richer now, thanks to you. Well, you're welcome. Thank you for joining us at Taking Measure, a podcast series exploring Roderick Haig Brown's 1950 classic work, Measure of the Year, reflections on home, family, and a life fully lived. You can link to the Haig Brown House website in the show notes, and there you'll find all kinds of goodies, including historical photographs and information about how to experience the house and all it offers, in person or virtually. From the study at Above Tide, the Haig Brown House Heritage Site on the bank of the Campbell River, I'm Dan McLennan.